You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. Hi, and welcome to episode 219 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host for today. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. I'm back after a uh, thankfully not extended illness. Uh, joining me today is Nathan Gilmore, who's an associate professor of English at uh, Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. Nathan, how's it going? It's going pretty well. We're past midterm. We're heading for the end zone, uh, which is what happens when you start the first week of August. Uh, true enough. Also joining us is Assistant Professor of English uh, at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas, David Grubbs. Hello, hello. How are things down there? Uh, yeah, we didn't start then, so we're not there. Um <laughs> Yeah, I, I just feel I this is this is a weird semester. Um, I would just, imagine so. Yeah, just now feeling like I have my stride, and it's almost midterm. So, yay! <laughs> we don't have a midterm. We have six week grades are due uh, two weeks ago. By the time you actually listen to this episode, or no, a week ago, I don't know. All right, so six weeks out of how many? Fourteen or fifteen, so it's okay. not it's not halfway. Yeah, that is odd. Well, you know, we're in an odd school. <laughs> what else is happening in the network, guys? Oh, let's see here. The Christian Feminist Podcast uh, did a pair of really good episodes. One on the uh, Truth's Table podcast and on racial racial reconciliation more generally. That was a fabulous uh, episode. It really was. And they followed it up with one that I really, really enjoyed as well on the Netflix series, The Crown, uh, mm. which I, I, like, I almost want to write, you know, like a series of blog posts responding to it, not because they got it wrong, but because they only had an hour and you could tease out so many things they were working with. So uh, two really good episodes from that crew. Uh, trying to think, and actually, I mean, those two crews, because of course the Christian feminist podcast is our hockey team podcast where any given episode, you'll have a different line on the ice. Um, but the city of man podcast has done a couple, uh, interview episodes. Uh, who else? I mean, I'm sure the sectarian review has done something. What well, book the... of nature's back. Yes. Yay. Book of nature's back with the conflict hypothesis which is to say the history that says that religion and science are at war. What yeah, else? I just started that one, and it's, it's an interesting conversation so far. Mm-hmm. And then Grubbs did an interview about uh, New Testament virtue ethics, and I forget the name of the author there, but it was a good interview as well. And I am recording an interview for Profiles with Alan Jacobs uh, oh, Wednesday, but I don't know when it'll go up. Wow, okay. cool. Yeah, I'm very nervous. I'm afraid of Alan Jacobs. <laughs> well, that's all right. I've got one coming up sometime, hopefully in the next few weeks, with uh, David Bentley Hart. Oh, that that's scary. That terrifies me. It really does. I mean, first, first of all, because I, you know, learned my Greek from someone who taught the Erasmian pronunciations, which he just absolutely eviscerates every chance he gets. 
So I'm going to... Well, that'll be fun. Yeah, I'm going to slip and say a Greek word wrong, and that's going to be the end of it. (laughs) We should also mention, for some reason we haven't talked about this yet, we're doing a live show next month at the uh, Culture, Criticism, and the Christian Mind Conference at Dort College in, what is it, Sioux Center, Iowa? Iowa. Mm -hmm. So that's an academic conference, but I think... Laymen and laywomen are uh, are are welcome. So if you want lay to persons, even yeah, I don't I don't like that gender neutral language. I'd better just repeat myself. Uh, so if you, if you're if you're interested in going there, I, we have we have posted about it on our Facebook page, and so there'll be links there if you're if you're interested in going. You do have to register both mm. for the conference and for our particular panel. And then all three of us are also presenting on other panels. Uh, David and I, I think are on the same panel for some reason. We I think. As as usual, I'm on the kind of bastard panel, where there's a, <laughs> whatever, whatever couldn't find a home in any of the other panels. Nice, it, nice. It, it's it's a miscellany. It has nothing to do with the disposition of the people who are on it, or their lineage. Yeah, well, kind of the kind of their lineage. So, uh, if you're interested in going to that, we'd love to meet you. Uh, I, Indeed, we, you guys will sign autographs, right? Oh shoot! Yeah, <laughs> sure. I will, but I'll only sign Nathan's bring, name. Bring <laughs> any of our fine Christian humanist intangible internet products, and we will sign it. Well, one of us you might remember has a book. Oh right, like I can afford it. Yeah, well, no, who yeah. could? <laughs> who could? <laughs> so anyway, we hope to see some of you there. But for now, we're talking about uh, music. Uh, we're talking about a piece by the French Catholic composer Olivier Messiaen. The piece is called, I will try to pronounce it in French, Quatre pour le fond de temps, the quartet for the end of time. Uh, it is one of the stranger pieces of modern classical music, which is saying something, I think. But it's strange. <laughs> it's strange. I, I'm sure we'll argue as the as the episode goes on. It's strange in a particularly Christian way, and thus uh, hopefully of interest to our audience. Uh, in the great classical canon, Messian is a relatively minor figure. Uh, he only gets two paragraphs in Jan Swafford's Vintage Guide to Classical Music, which is my Bible for these sorts of things. Mm. So, Grubbs, would you take a moment and tell us who Olivier Messian was, why he's so interesting, and why none of us have ever heard of him? <laughs> well, he gets four paragraphs in the Encyclopedia Britannica. So, yay. Uh, Olivier Mission. Um, did, did, did I do that? Did I do that right? Well, yeah, better than I did, frankly. I, I'm, I'm terrible to pronouncing his last name or spelling it. My goodness, spelling it's a bear. <laughs> it's like it's like Messiah, but then it takes like a hard shift at the end, and you're just like, ah, I don't know how to land, stick the landing. Well, and it seems um, like an un-French last name to me, um, but hey, what do I know? Yeah, since since the encyclopedia only has four paragraphs i can't answer that born in 1908 died in 1992 Uh, just kind of sketch out in your mind what goes down in france in between those times and yeah he lived through all that especially world war ii but that's not a chapter that i have to focus on yay French, very, very French. He has four names, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica. Um, Olivier Eugène Prosper Charles. Something like that. Eugene Prosper Charles, which seems almost like it should be a sentence. 
<laughs> but yeah, influential French composer. Uh, he was also uh, also played uh, piano in the in the piece that we're talking about today, if I remember correctly. Um, he also was an organist, composed for the organ, composed for choirs. Uh, he wrote a an opera on the life of St. Francis of Assisi. Uh, he also wrote a book to explain his art, his musical method to people, uh, which which tells you something of how much on the bleeding edge of 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 music he uh, he was. <laughs> I am not equipped to fully explain uh, all of his significance, and that probably is a good answer to your question why none of us have ever heard of him. He's mm -hmm. hard to talk about, Michael. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you. I, my guess is to really explain his significance, you need more specialized classical music vocabulary than you and I have. Yeah, he's he's not the guy that people call into NPR on a Saturday to request. Although he does mm -hmm. show up on the uh, piano puzzler sometimes. Oh yeah. <laughs> of all things. Of all things, for 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 one who likes the Baroque or who likes the Romantics, um, he he's not exactly going to scratch those itches. Um, but we'll we'll talk about the musical quality of him in a little bit. His father was an English professor, which I thought, or an English, uh, a scholar of, of, of English lit, which I thought was really interesting, a French professor of English literature. Um, his mother was also uh, a writer uh, of, of, of some sort. Um, his, his musical talent was recognized early on. Uh, he uh, studied at the Paris Conservatory. Um, he was... He held various important positions as a as a, a musician and as a composer, and continued to be important um, basically through through all of his life. Uh, from w some of what I've read, because he was so intensely Roman Catholic, there was at least uh, a part of his career where critics looked at him askance. Um, not always has. Uh, devout uh, devout Christian faith been something that the French mainstream saw as respectable yeah and so the, the, the fact that so many of his pieces uh, are are directly uh, meant to be performed in churches or directly um, on uh, theological themes uh, was was not always something that was super well received apparently um that i mean other other than the other than the story of the immediate context for this particular piece uh, which uh, you're going to field in the next question i think nathan uh, what what else what else do we need to toss in here well, i mean just to re reiterate what you already said david i mean in an age where artists and intellectuals uh, are tending to either go fascist or to go Stalinist. Uh, he mm, remains a mm -hmm. Roman Catholic, and I mean that's that's that would be significant in any moment. But in the you know 1930s and 40s, that's really significant. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. 
and all the other musicians and artists are going political, he goes religious. Which is a kind of political. That's uh, fair. And I'll, I'll point out two things. Number one, um, his, when, when, I, when I teach this piece, which I do in a class, uh, I, I say that his Catholicism is as important to his compositional method as Bach's uh, Lutheranism is to his. So, mm-hmm. I mean, this is, this is a deeply Catholic music even though it doesn't sound anything at all like uh, like uh, Bach, I, I would I would put them in the same category. <laughs> the other reason I think a lot more people haven't heard of him is he um, he doesn't really have followers. So you think of someone like Schoenberg, who is no less difficult, maybe more difficult than Messian. Mm-hmm. Um, Schoenberg has a school essentially of composers who are post Schoenberg, and there there just isn't that for Messian. The closest you get is this guy Pierre Boulet, who I think for most people is best known as the person who accidentally called uh, Paul Simon Al, and and is thus the progenitor of the song "You Can Call Me Al." <laughs> he was he was <laughs> he was Messian's student, but even there, I don't think that I don't think that uh, Boulet's music sounds that much like Messian. So he, he's, he's kind of a singular figure in the, in the middle of the 20th century. In some ways, his music is more medieval than it is modern, although, of course, it's also very modern. It's one of those, it's one of those things where by, by moving forward, you end up moving backwards the way post-modernity some, sometimes looks like pre-modernity. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think Messian is, is medieval in some key weird ways that we'll talk about a little later, I suspect. I, I can also imagine, I, I would have a hard time imagining this music being extracted and used in the kinds of ways that more accessible composers frequently are, um, where, you know, Aaron Copeland gets dragged and dropped into all kinds of situations. <laughs> Every cowboy uh, movie ever. Right, or, or you know, that, Wagner. A pork, the other white meat commercial. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, uh, beef. It's what's for dinner. The. <laughs> you, you can't really. This is the only one of his pieces that I've listened through to all the way. There were a few things that I kind of listened to portions of just to kind of get a sense of, of, what he sounds like when he's not just writing a quartet. But I find him impossible to whistle. <laughs> yeah, and, which, and, and, and which I don't. For me I'll is, talk about that later. <laughs> yeah, which for me is so much of of whether or not I'm. It's this is going to be a favorite piece is whether or not I can have a tune that I can latch onto and and sort of whistle to myself. And and mm. I can't imagine him being extracted and reapplied in in some of these other ways. Um, you, you, you have to be in, it, it, it's almost as if you have to be inside of his music. He's not, you know, it's, it's, it's not as easy to take his music and put it in other things. Which is true mm. of someone like Schoenberg as well. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. Nathan, I know mm-hmm. you're a big Schoenberg fan. I don't know about a big fan, but I do put Schoenberg on and listen to him. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, let's uh, actually, let's, let's put off the question I was about to ask you because it fits. It'll fit better with something we're going to talk about in a minute. And instead, mm-hmm. uh, let's talk about the the um, the origin of the quartet for the end of time. It, it is a this is a truly spectacular story, maybe the best 
in modern classical music. How did he come to write this piece? And do you see any kind of traces of the circumstances of its composition in the music? To set the stage, uh, when Germany invades Poland in 1939 to begin World War II, uh, you know, a, a chain reaction of declarations of war happened. Uh, France, who had built up, you know, just impenetrable, impenetrable defenses to make sure they never lost World War I again, uh, gets <laughs> overrun uh, as the German Panzer divisions basically ignore the Maginot Line roll over the forest and take northern France. Uh, southern France, of course, you know, that wasn't all that impressed with modern socialism anyway and had slogans going around like better Hitler than Leon Blum, uh, quickly, you know, signs a treaty to become part of the Reich. Uh, and, you know, France is a German territory. I mean, in a, basically much faster than a territory that big should become ger German territory. So Messian is captured. Uh, he ends up in a prisoner of war camp there in 1940. And what he discovers in the course of living in this prisoner of war camp is that he is not the only musician there, but there are three other very talented musicians there, a cellist, a violinist, and a clarinetist. And he makes friends with one of the guards there at the prison, and I'm sure Michael's going to fill in all these names a little bit later because he's a lot better with the historical stuff than I am. I'm not going um, to fill in any names. Uh, who basically is able to secure for them musical instruments uh, and also, you know, basically writing materials uh, so that Messian can start uh, composing a symphony. Uh, and this is a small symphony because there are only four musicians. I've already said what the four instruments are. Uh, and he performs it in a hall of 400 prisoners of war in 1940, and that becomes its original performance concept, uh, context. Now, I mean, I, I tend to think, honestly, you know, when, when you told me the story of this piece, Michael, uh, I expected a lot of music that resembles the, you know, first and fourth movements, uh, or not the first one, but the, uh, Black second, movement. right? Yeah, the second and the seventh. There we go. Yeah. Very angry, very, you know, bombastic. But really, it is the signature moments are very, very placid, very, very quiet, very, very slow. In fact, one of them is marked infinitely slow, and I can't disagree. Um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so, I mean, I think that, you know, the way that I imagine this piece now relative to its historical moment is not a reflection of it so much as an act of resistance to the moment. If you think of national socialism and fascism more broadly as growing out of, you know, this sort of futurist speed is everything kind of philosophy, uh, this is a piece that, you know, for seven minutes slows things down so much that you are dwelling on each note that emerges. And then just in case you forgot that experience, it does it again for eight minutes at the end. Mm -hmm. uh, so... It is, I, I would say, an act of resistance to the great speed and the great violence of its moment, even as it does have moments where the piano is quite strident and, you know, is, is doing a, you know, as much DACRA as you can do with a piano. Yeah, and, and the, the, the movement you're talking about, the, the second one, um, yeah. you, you get this very uh, 
very loud part at the beginning and at the end of that movement, both of which are supposed to be the angel blowing the horn to announce the end of time. Anything to add about that origin story? One of the one of the things that I do think we need to we do need to make clear that he's in a prisoner of war camp. He's not in a he's not in a concentration camp. Correct. Uh, That's sometimes misreported. Yeah. Did I yeah. did I mess that up? You did not. No. You did. You, you didn't okay, mess good, that good, up. Good. I... You didn't mess it up. I just want to underline it because if you bop around YouTube, um, you know, looking to to listen to a recording of this or whatever, um, you might hear. Uh, you, you might see comments or explanations um, connecting this to the Holocaust. Um, right, ex- right. Except that this is, you know, happening in World War II. I don't see much connection to that in particular. Right, um, right. Well, and that, uh, you know, I wondered at first, you know, because I, again, I, I read up on it before I started listening to it. And I mm-hmm. wondered if the Crystal Liturgy was somehow linked to Kristallnacht. It doesn't mm-hmm. seem to be. Mm-mm. It seems to be more the the you know the crystalline spheres and the music of the spheres, mm-hmm. uh, more than it is the the crystal knocked night of broken seas, glass, seas right. of glass and rainbows of emerald. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. He, there's a lot of rainbows in this piece. I mean, besides mm-hmm. the is it the is it the seventh movement that's that's uh, rainbow? Tangle of rainbows. If mm-hmm. anybody's really interested in diving into this piece, there is a uh, there's a video on YouTube that plays the piece and shows the sheet music. Yes, and that's the one I little, watched. If you speak a little bit of French, you you can you can see that his um his instructions are very idiosyncratic. And and at one point he tell I believe he tells uh I think it's the piano to play like rainbows. Huh. <laughs> So I mean, rainbows. Rainbows actually recur in this piece, as do uh, okay. as do a few other things. Mm-hmm. Well, none of us are trained in art music, so as as I said, we we probably don't have the vocabulary to talk about this piece the way professionals would. And if there are people who are trained in art music, uh, sorry for whatever <laughs> no, they, they've already got their emails half written, so don't worry <laughs> about it. <laughs> so we, we'll give it a shot. Talking about words we are comfortable with. Uh, what does the quartet sound like? Uh, where would you position it in terms of modernist classical music? What sort of techniques does it use? If you're comfortable talking about those sorts of things, Grub, let's start with you. So I was terrified of this question, and <laughs> yeah, poke, poking around, uh, found, and I think I think we should probably link this. This is it's it's actually a 20 year old article in the Atlantic. That talks about uh, Messiaen as uh, the title is an Audubon in sound, hmm. which is talking especially about one feature of his music, which we're going to pick up a little later on. But it does talk about a lot of a lot of the other 
um, a lot a lot of what what makes uh, what makes him uh, who he is um, musically compositionally a lot of it has to do with tempo and rhythm uh, he 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 doesn't have a a regular driving beat through a whole piece he does he, he he'll just radically alter t- tempo um, speeding up slowing down yeah <laughs> he is he is apparently doing um, sophisticated mathematical things involving prime numbers and ratios which I am neither musical or mathematical enough to explain <laughs> but it's there so the sorts of people who like to listen to Baroque music because of its kind of mathematical precision might actually um, enjoy uh, that aspect of Messiaen in ways that I'm not aesthetically equipped to. Uh, he's, mm, let's see, he's also been compared, uh, was was compared in, in some of what I read to uh, Debussy. Yeah, I could hear that. Uh, which makes a lot of sense, um, especially that that's a clarinet, right? Yeah, clarinet. Yeah, it's 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 especially that clarinet that it makes me think of things like Prelude to an Afternoon with a Fawn. Um, there's there's some bits of the confusion remind me of parts of of La Mer. Um, but he lacks he lacks Debussy's gentleness, wouldn't you say? Even no. even in the even in the slow movements. I, I think of Debussy as being like a, a rainy garden or something, and that that's mm-hmm. not that's not who Messian is at all. Yeah, if if you take the the unpredictability in Debussy that keeps preventing you from settling into that comfortable rainy garden that his music is making at the moment, um, if you take that unpredictability and make that the center, um, it, it's that that analogy. Uh, I think works a little bit more. Um, there have been some mentions to Stravinsky. Uh, I don't know that it's, I don't know that it's that similar to Stravinsky, except to say he's he's pursuing unpredictability and atonality and things like that um, in ways that are that that my only other frame of reference is Stravinsky, but then. All of my Stravinsky, I, I I know because that's what plays when dinosaurs fight each other. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so if if anyone wants to pursue that, uh, by by all means do so. I don't I don't know as much about the church music stuff. Um, one of the things that I read said that he had developed some kind of musical way of interpreting letters into music so that he could convert passages of writing into music. Uh, I haven't heard any examples of that and I don't even understand what that sound what, what that would even sound like. But uh, when you talked about the medieval um, Michael, it does remind me th- that idea at least reminds me of the way that uh, Gregorian chant functions. Um, in which there's not necessarily set tunes to set songs so much as it is a particular way that you that you sing and that you chant when a line has 
a particular length with syllables with accents in particular places so that the 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 text is is sort of giving you a musical agenda as you sing through it um what else what else do we want to toss in there i feel like i'm leaving out so much but again i'm right at the edge of my education here yeah well since michael teed me up earlier for schoenberg i mean there's definitely something similar to schoenberg's 12 tone composition going on with the piano parts in this piece um you know you get a lot of sequences of notes that aren't necessarily melodic in a romantic sense uh but they are definitely recognizable and they're definitely mathematically regular uh and you know those sequences again i mean you're not going to put them on a uh you know what did we say a, a pork chop commercial or whatever we were talking about <laughs> earlier uh, but they are notes which, in their sequence, challenge the mind. And, and, and I found it fascinating. I mean, I, one of the reasons I mentioned is Catholicism earlier uh, is that, you know, when Adorno, for instance, writes about this kind of uh, non-melodic composition, uh, he frames it in Marxist terms to such an extent that I just kind of identified the two uh, you know, with each other. I mean, the technique just goes with the ideology. So this piece was a challenge to me in that, you know, this is emerging out of a very different intellectual tradition, even though it is using very similar techniques. Now, because I'm, I've got a squirrely brain, the repeated piano sequence, I mean, started to sound like the, uh, the little bridge from the jazz standard Ain't Misbehavin'. I know it's not supposed to sound like that, <laughs> but it eventually did. <laughs> so, so, Michael, uh, uh, bring us back into seriousness, seriousness here. What else is going on musically? Messian had synesthesia, which is, which is where you, you, one sense gets mixed up with the other sense. So some people see letters as having colors and things like that. Well, Messian mm, saw particular mm-hmm. tones and chords as having colors. And so um, I wish I'd written all this down. It, it's it's one of the later movements, six or seven, mm-hmm. uh, where he claims that it's blue and orange lava. Yes. Is, is, is the sound I remember the... reading that. Yeah, and, and I, I thought blue and orange chords was something that modernists just knew about, but that's from his synesthesia. <laughs> that's what they say, yeah, synesthesia. Okay. And, and, and uh, that's, that's interesting, right, because... That means that nobody else is going to see it that way because even people who have synesthesia, they don't all see it in the same colors. So it, it makes mm. it it makes it a very um, a very personal sort of tonality. Mm-hmm. Do you almost have to be him in order to hear his music? Something like that. I, I, I think so. At least to hear it the way he hears it because of the the color thing. I wish I, I wish I was synesthetic. I don't know. It just seems really inconvenient sometimes. Oh, I think it'd be so cool to be able to see colors like that. I mean, I can see colors, but I don't—they're not brought to mind <laughs> by music. And see, True. I'm not—I'm not synesthetic. I just hear weird hypertext because I—I <laughs> I, I keep hearing you know dun 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 dun. I'm thinking the next line's going to be ain't misbehaving. <laughs> <laughs> And I know it's not, and I know that I'm a terrible person for thinking that, but <laughs> you should you should try to prove that's what it was supposed to be. <laughs> the, could... the, the, okay, so I need to write to the people at Dort and say I'm changing my conference paper. 
Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Olivia well, Mission is... misbehaving. <laughs> he wasn't a he wasn't a prisoner of war camp. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> This is program music of a sort. It tells the story of the Christian apocalypse. Uh, Nathan, you're the closest thing we have to a theologian. How faithfully, <laughs> how faithfully does this piece align with the Book of Revelation? And in some ways, does it does it make that book clearer? It's hard to think of this piece making other things clearer. Yeah, I, I was thinking that when I read your show notes, Michael, and I thought, man, I, you know, I need apocalypse to make this music clearer. Um, you know, the, the commentaries that I read prepping for the episode, I mean, dealt largely with, uh, Revelation 10, uh, which is at the end of the first cycle of visions that John the seer has, uh, one cycle, you know, begins roughly speaking in Revelation four and ends roughly in Revelation 11. The second cycle begins in Revelation 12 and ends roughly in Revelation 22 at the end of the book. Um, did I just say 22? Anyway, mm-hmm. I, <laughs> I'm like, oh shoot, did I just like give Revelation an extra chapter? But I didn't. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> what's fascinating about this is that, you know, the movements that he puts in here uh, certainly reflect phrases from that 10th chapter of the Apocalypse. Uh, mm-hmm. unless I had read notes on it though, I never would have associated with that. Uh, again, partly because Adorno had it in my head 10 years ago that this is Marxist music. So I would have assumed that these were, you know, the upsurges and the revolutions of the dialectic and then the, you know, slow rebuilding that, you know, generates the next contradiction and so on and so forth. Um, that said, I mean, once you've got the notes, I mean, you can, or, yeah, the notes, I mean, the, the commentary on the piece, you can definitely hear these things going on. And what's fascinating about them is that it doesn't remain within the apocalypse, uh, but you also have, you know, references to John 1, in which the Logos creates all things. Uh, you have, you know, these other, you know, links to other parts of the Bible. So uh, hmm. as far as, you know, how well does it align? I mean, once you tell me that that's what it is, I basically agree. Yeah, that's what it is. Uh, if I had to listen to it and say, what story is it telling? This isn't what I would have guessed. <laughs> I have trouble with program music. I can never tell what it's supposed to be unless somebody tells me. So I don't yeah. yeah. <laughs> David, what would you add, man? Just a really quick, uh, I know what it is, but what is program music? Program music is music that's meant to tell a story. So, so the the classic example is Beethoven's Sixth Symphony. Mm-hmm. Uh, tells tells the story of a, a of a picnic that's been interrupted by a thunderstorm, or mm-hmm. like uh, the Symphonie Fantastique by Berlioz is is the story. It has a definite plot. I, I don't know why I picked that one since I can't tell you what the story is. Or <laughs> uh, or Rite of Spring, for example. I, that may not count as program music. It's yeah, because it's a, a ballet. Company. Yeah. It's actually a <laughs> something. So right. it would be it would be instrumental music that 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 isn't connected to anything else, but nevertheless is meant to tell a story. Pictures in an exhibition. Pictures in an ex- exhibition is program music. Okay. I think. See, I'm I'm afraid to make a pronouncement like that. I'm, I'm afraid <laughs> I got it wrong, and some uh, classical music uh, aficionado is going to write in and tell me what an idiot I am. Mm-hmm. 
Well, we're doing our best. We're doing our best. <laughs> we, we picked a hard piece. I mean, we're not yeah. we're not doing Beethoven's fifth. Right, right. <laughs> uh, well, the thing everybody knows about Messi, if they know anything at all, is that he transcribed bird song and turned it into formal music. He has one piece I can't remember what it's called. It's essentially nothing but bird song, and it's mm. real bird song. Mm. So, so he just goes out in the woods writes down what the birds are singing and turns it into a piece, which is pretty cool. He does that here too, both at the beginning, the clarinet opens the, uh, the clarinet opens the quartet and that is bird song. But also there's a very strange movement. It's number three called the abim des oiseaux, which means abyss of birds. <laughs> David, why does he do that? Is he is there a artistic or narrative reason to have all these birds flapping around, or is it just that he likes birds? Ah, uh, so there. Remember that part in Revelation when like all the birds. <laughs> yeah. I, okay. <laughs> now the only the, seriously the only part in Revelation uh, that I could think of uh, was Revelation 19 when the angel calls all of the birds to eat up the dead army of the beast. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think that was these birds. <laughs> no, I don't think so either. I think these are friendly birds. Right. It's it's like all of these like finches and stuff descend on. No. Uh, so oh, I, I don't know, man. We <laughs> birds are birds are cute, but uh, they are dinosaurs. <laughs> Those finches would definitely eat your body if it was hanging in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> Songbirds can't trust them. So the the only thing that I can think of is he he's one of the things he's interested in 
is symmetry. And often there will be something that is to him musically alike going on in the opposite part of the piece. Um, one of the things in the, the Atlantic article I was reading would talk about how he would compose pieces with what he saw as a palindrome structure. Mm-hmm. And so I tried to think. This one is it's eight movements, right? So we're three movements in, which would make uh, the Dance of Wrath number six uh, the opposite of the Abyss of Birds. And I don't know if this is smart. I just read a thing that said palindrome and I can count. So <laughs> I thought, is the Abyss of Words in any way, can you, can you put it next to Dance of Wrath for the Seven Trumpets? Mm. And, if you, and if you do that, then that single... That that single clarinet, almost but not quite coalescing into a melody that you can recognize and reproduce, um, which that that is to me the impression of the abyss of birds is that it, it, it's a continual mel- uh, approach to something like melodic regularity that keeps dissipating, um, mm. and when you put that next to the dance of wrath which is just frenetic and and confusing there's there's something wistful in the abyss of birds in contrast to that mm-hmm. um uh, so still frenetic but not in the same way not not in right, the same way right. there's 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 something there's something beautiful in the abyss of birds that isn't there um, in the in in the dance in the dance of wrath, um, but I, I have a very very difficult again very difficult time talking about it. He did love the bird song. Um, the the Atlantic article that I was talking about said uh, I, I liked this. Birds do not sing the way people write music, and tried transcribing them was like concocting algebra to reproduce calligraphy. Oh, that's a great line. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and so uh, it describes some of the some of the difficulties of um, the, the speed of bird song. Um, the tonal shifts in bird songs are are not they're not hitting the white keys or the black keys, but they're always somewhere around in between somewhere. Um, the way that they might glide or just go into kind of a sharp staccato. Um, and how do you how do you how do, how do you note that so that you end up um, with something that's more like uh, an impression of bird song inspired by bird song than uh, an actual an actual bird song? Um, what, uh, one of the one of the things that note, it notes is uh, in another piece, not this piece, uh, he uses a bassoon and a bass clarinet. Um, mm-hmm to do the bird song and then the the article says real birds cannot make sounds that low and one of his uh one of his uh friends says no bird is big enough to do that (laughs) 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 you need a big deep voiced bird for that so so yeah there's something he finds inspiring about this and i can't i mean I, i think pretty clearly it's 
you know, it's in a lot of his different works, and and it must be what lies behind his Saint Francis opera at the end. Um, yeah, I would think so. But that's that's the best I got. Anybody else want to take a swing at this pinata? I mean, as far as an artistic reason, I mean, I and again, this might just be my imagination imposing this on the piece, but. Uh, I like to think of it as Messian's own little response to the first verse of the eighth chapter of Revelation. You know, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was mm. silence in heaven for about half an hour. And it's huh. almost as if we're speculating, okay, but what if there were an especially ambitious bird that tried to coax heaven into starting things up again? Hmm. And sure, I for a like second, that. I thought you were going to say this was his crickets chirping. Oh, <laughs> no, because, I mean, it's not just a cricket filling silence. I mean, there is an urgency. There is a mm, an invitation mm-hmm. to this bird song that's just wonderful. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm imposing that on it, but that's what I imagined. <laughs> mm. I've heard two conflicting um, explanations. One is which the, the, excuse me, one of which is that the birds represent time fighting against eternity. Okay. And the other is that the birds represent eternity fighting against time. So the abyss <laughs> is time itself, like a black hole, and they're getting sucked into it. Mm-hmm. Okay. But I don't know. You, both of your explanations sound every bit as plausible and revelatory as that. <laughs> <laughs> nice. The key movement, I think, is the finale which mm-hmm. is a praise of Christ's immortality. The, the mm. fifth movement is a similar praise of Christ's um, eternity. Mm-hmm. They are not the same. No. Um, uh, for one thing, one is scored for piano and cello, and the other is scored for piano and violin. But the piano is actually doing different things in both of them, which I didn't realize until I watched that video with the score. It's actually quite different. Nathan, tell me what is going on in the final eight minutes of this piece and, and how he's playing on the notion of the end of time. Well, as you noted, I mean, we have two uh, praise movements, if you will. Uh, mm-hmm. Both of them, you know, praises to Jesus. One, you know, the uh, praise to the eternity of Jesus and one to the immortality of Jesus. My French is almost non-existent, but I, I, I can tell that much. Um, if you know, if you know the first word louange means praise. You're, you're, you're yeah, right. yeah. So I mean, the final movement um, is very, very slow once again. Uh, and although you know, from what I read, you know, Messian tried to deny that uh, 
the circumstances of composition gave it its shape. I, I can't help but think that, again, this is a response uh, to the speed of mechanized warfare, to the, you know, light speed communication of the radio era, so on and so forth. In the midst of all that, we get a final movement of this symphony that is just so, so very slow. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the end of time motif, um, you know, I mean, I, I, everything makes me think of Dante, so this is no exception. You know, this is, in my mind, a musical version of Dante's continued insistence in Paradiso that words ultimately cannot reflect eternity because they are temporal realities. Mm -hmm. Uh, Here, what I'm hearing is a symphony can never capture eternity or immortality, but we're going to try real hard. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, the pulsing of the piano uh, is just, you know, one note at a time with just these enormous gaps in between them uh, as the cello in the fifth movement and the violin in the seventh do their things. Uh, Or not seventh, eighth. Golly, I can't get numbers right today. Um, And kind of like what David was saying earlier, I mean, when I am sitting and listening to what's going on here, I have a sense of what's going on, but my musical vocabulary uh, can't reach that far, which is itself kind of a Dantean sentence, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So, yes. <laughs> Michael, I mean, I, of the three of us, you've got the most musical training. I mean, uh, what should I have said just now? <laughs> well, there's literally no time signature. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so time signature tells you how many how many beats there are per measure. Yeah. This piece has measures, but not time signatures. Ah. So in that sense, he's he's playing it with it. I mean, there it is literally the end of time, in the sense that the, the piece does not have time. Um, my understanding, and David, you may have to correct me, is that medieval music also does not have time signature. So this this puts him in line with those Gregorian chants, um, in the sense that you know it's just not a concern. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I have heard the piano, especially in that last piece, our last movement called the heartbeat. Because hmm. if, if you look, what the big difference between what the piano is doing in the fifth movement, what the piano is doing in the eighth movement, is that there's a there's a doubling in the eighth movement. So it goes bump, bump. But you don't hear the second one. The second one is there. But until you're aware that's what's happening, you won't hear it. And, and again, I really do encourage everybody to go watch that YouTube video. Because you'll 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 see what's happening. Even if you don't read music, you'll see the piano doubling that um, doubling that beat. And and uh, there's something human about that, right? I mean, it's yes. it's, it's kind of a love dub. Um, so so existence is going on even if time is no longer going on. Mm-hmm. Another thing, uh, this was pointed out to me. I didn't I didn't come up with this. The, the piece <laughs> begins with a clarinet blowing. Um, in a way that is supremely limited because you can't play a clarinet forever, mm-hmm. right? Unless you do circular breathing because the clarinet is limited by your, your ability to uh, hold your breath. The piano can't play forever. It's, it's limited. It's limited uh, by the, the resonance of the strings. A violin uh, in that, in that last movement actually could play forever. I mean, in theory, you could have a machine that did, I guess you could have a machine that did the clarinet, but the, the violin's not limited by human breath. 
And so it stretches out for that eight minutes because it can stretch out for that eight minutes. Hmm. And so you, you, you have a movement from the beginning of the piece to the end in which something that is limited by time becomes unlimited by time. Um, and and in, in that sense, um, again, Messian is playing with that notion of the end of time. Uh, the, the other thing I would call attention to is the very end of this piece, which I think in the digital age can be difficult for us to realize. That's not an artificial fade out. The instruments are actually, they're actually being played until they're not making noise anymore. Huh. Mm. Mm. So, so in its way, the piece doesn't end. It's just, it's just gone on in a, in a register beneath what you can hear. And I, I think, if you, if you listen to whatever version of it you're using, whatever MP3 or CD or whatever, my guess is that the track ends about 10 seconds after you're able to stop, after you stop being able to hear what it's, what's being played. And I think, I think in that sense, eternity has entered the piece already, or the piece has entered eternity, depending on how you want to think about it. Mm -hmm. But I, I really think that last movement is one of the most beautiful pieces of music I've ever heard. Mm. And not at all what you would expect from a piece about the apocalypse written in a prisoner of war camp during World War II. True no, enough. not necessarily. <laughs> David, anything to add there? Has anything that you've read made made a point out of the difference between the praise of Christ eternity and, and praise of Christ immortality, connecting that heartbeat to the idea that Christ is incarnate man forever? That's that's an interesting question. I mean, that would be the difference. Christ's eternity would be something he held out, right? Yes. Christ is like sustaining eternity, whereas Christ's immortality is who he is. Mm -hmm. Or, or you could say eternity means pre-existence, whereas immortality is after death. Death defeated we may all be in immortal, this. But none of us are eternal. Yeah. The, this this that's a that's a really interesting point Dave. this time this existence of time that just kind of continues on and on and on and on um i reminded to uh, just got done uh team teaching a sunday school class in which we talked about uh, hymns and yesterday we looked at uh, reginald heber's holy 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 and that that particular hymn playing off of both Isaiah and Revelation. But in Revelation chapter 4, the, the phrase is very simple. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. It's very easy to, to read that, and it's very, very short. It fits in a verse. <laughs> but it says before, just before that phrase that the, the creatures that are singing that never cease day and night doing so. Mm. So that uh, that fade out at the end hit me. I, 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 I thought about that holy, 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 and the fact that even though through the whole of the book of Revelation and through the whole of existence, uh, we don't hear the holy, 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 <laughs> Uh, that that verse says that the holy 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 is there, and so in, in the way that the uh, the way that this piece just kind of drifts off into silence, um, suggests that it does continue just beyond your hearing, uh, in in the same way that that holy 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 is is underlying uh, everything that comes before and after it in John's apocalypse. Right. 
the musicians can't play that piece forever. They have to they have to get up and go to the bathroom at some point. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, the the piece plays forever. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's cool. Well, I want to give this episode one of our so-called wine and cheese endings. Um, <laughs> in what circumstance could you see this quartet finding its way into your classroom or your research? And what sorts of texts or cultural artifacts would you pair it with? And David, we'll start with you and you can just throw it over to Nathan. Given how much I teach is not anywhere appro- uh, approaching uh, the the cultural or artistic um, history and frame of reference of this, so medieval though it is so medieval though um and one of the things that i that i thought and it's it's largely suggested by the uh by the apocalyptic uh content by its setting uh in world war ii uh, i thought of the old english wanderer poem uh, i've 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 referenced this i've referenced this in other episodes but the wanderer poem is a uh, an unnamed speaker who's who is part of a, a kingdom that has fallen. Uh, he has buried his king. He has buried his friends, and now he sort of stands alone in the world, trying to find a place. But as the poem moves on, uh, the 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 wanderer shifts from thinking about the way his own world has ended to the way the whole world itself will end, and. What what will it be like when everything is silent? Um, when when all the world uh, is done, and then uh, the the poem ends, uh, essentially saying that uh, the the one who is wise will learn uh, to to seek what is eternal and what will stand fast forever in heaven where the Father is, and that that shift from personal apocalypse to uh, personal world ending to um, all mortal, mortal world ending to uh, that, that desire to seek the timelessness at the end of the piece. Um, that's exactly what happens in this piece, um, in the Messian piece. And so in, in some ways uh, I see the Wanderer and, and uh, Messian um, in conversation, maybe, uh, probably not consciously. I doubt Messian knew about the Wanderer, but maybe he, maybe he did. His father was uh, did study English literature, so maybe he was exposed to it. Who knows? Um, Debussy might be might be good to acquire a taste for Debussy before dipping into this. Um, if you if you aren't used to listening to kind of the modernist composers of this era, you might want to, you know, get a taste for listening to someone that Messian liked. Sort of, if you want to sort of lower yourself into the pool gently. Uh, I was also interested in the way, uh, again, setting this in World War II, and uh, it made me think of the of the movie Dunkirk and the stories about Dunkirk surrounding it, and the ways that are uh, that experiences of war. Um, become theologized in our art and in the way that we talk about them and remember them and how even that experience of the fall of France and World War II um, from the British angle ends up getting theologized as the miracle of Dunkirk um, while 
one of the French soldiers who ends up in a prisoner of war camp um, ends up artistically theologizing it in a different kind of way. Uh, David looked backwards. I'm going to look forwards from Messiaen. And I, I think that a novel uh, that plays with mathematical structure on such a sophisticated level that I miss it unless someone tells me about it, uh, one that plays with you know the notion of time, uh, one that has to do with redemption, although there are certainly moments where it is so grotesque that it's hard to see salvation working is uh, Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. Um, I think that, you know, the, the fade out at the end, you know, celebrating the uh, immortality of Christ, I mean, would be an interesting study next to the bizarre, what is it, 120-page flashback that Infinite Jest ends with. Uh, with no further commentary. I mean, you never return to the main story, spoiler alert. Uh, <laughs> but I think that, you know, this movement in the early 1940s playing with time is something that is instructive for, frankly, a lot of literature, and that's that's one novel that occurs to me. So, Michael, what what, what would you pair up? Uh, there's another classical piece written by, or another modern classical piece written by a uh, another devoutly Catholic composer, and and Lord knows I'm not going to mispronounce his name, but I believe it is uh, Henrik Goreshki. It's spelled Gorecki, but I think it's pronounced Goreshki. Mm -hmm. 1978, he writes a symphony number three, which is uh, called the Symphony of Sorrowful Songs. Um, it's a it's a vocal symphony. Uh, there's a there's a piece from a medieval manuscript in the voice of Mary. There's a, uh, and, and the, the second movement involves something written on a wall by a, uh, I believe she was a Holocaust victim. She, she wrote it on the wall in her, uh, in her cell. And, and that, that piece is all about the suffering of women for the sake of their children uh, in the context of the Holocaust. Uh, and like this piece, it slows things down to a glacial pace, uh, albeit for very different reasons. So if uh, if that doesn't sound absolutely brutal to you, maybe check it out. It's it's beautiful. It's not angular the way this is angular. It's it's the combination of the words and the uh, and the the context that makes it that makes it so uh, so hard to listen to in its way. Hmm. Thank you guys for uh, for struggling through this piece with me. Oh yeah, it was good. You're welcome. <laughs> Nathan, what are we doing next week? Uh, well, next week, uh, we're going to be releasing our episode on what Michael revealed to me as the anniversary of the death of Julia Ward Howe, uh, the composer of Battle Hymn of the Republic. And beyond that, while we are recording this, the social media world is obsessed with the national anthem. Uh, so we're going to talk next week about the national anthem and patriotic hymns. Cool. Sounds good. In the meantime, you can visit our website, which is christianhumanist.org. You can email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can like us on Facebook. You can leave uh, reviews for us on iTunes. Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our intern is Ellen Peterson. Until next time, this is Michael Farmer for Nathan Gilmore and David Grubb saying, let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger. <laughs>